This is Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. Stanford. 90.1 FM. Radio Atenea Americana. This is Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Radio Atenea Americana. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para la radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Juves. Isabel Juves. Bienvenidos. Atenea Americana. Welcome. Bienvenidos. From Stanford to the world. And today we are talking with the Honorable Adam Escoto. He is a trustee of the Board of Education of Morgan Hill, California. He is a native of the Bay Area, a kid who at the age of 10 entered the foster care system. Grew up to be a counselor for children in public schools. Later, part of the federal court order segregation team in the 80s. Later, an assistant principal, principal, holding different positions as district administrator until he retired as an assistant superintendent. Now, as a retired man, he's still serving children in public education and foster care, but as a school board member and as a court assigned advocate for children on foster care. Today, he will talk to us about his insights into the system that protect the uneducate children and about his experiences in it from all different sides. Stay with us and learn more about public education, about the foster kids system, and about our guests. Remember that this and all our shows are at stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org. Stay with us. So I want to welcome you very much to our show today and thank you for coming and be part of this. Well, Isabella, thank you. Thank you for the welcome. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, it's a pleasure <clears throat> to be here with, uh, with you and, and your audience. And I'm hoping that... Uh, in the course of our uh, conversation, uh, I can impart uh, some uh, new information for people. Oh, I'm sure you have a wealth of information with you and, and knowledge, and I'm sure of that. So let's start. Did you grow up in Morgan Hill or somewhere else in the Bay Area? No, that's a, that's a great question. And in fact, people are surprised when I tell them that uh, I actually grew up in, uh, in East Palo Alto, on the other side of the freeway of Stanford University. And uh, they, back then um, in East Palo Alto, there were two very distinct neighborhoods. There was the village that was predominantly white. And then there was the gardens that was uh, predominantly uh, black uh, with the exception of uh, four families. There was this uh, uh, Filipino family, three other uh, Latino families. And uh, my family was one of them. And your studies, are they also from the Bay Area, from Northern California? Well, I, um, 
I went to uh, a number of schools. Uh, when you say study, I, I'm assuming you mean right, college. Uh, yes, I, 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 I went to San Jose State uh, and did my uh, undergraduate work there. And then some years later, I went back and did my graduate work uh, where I got my uh, counseling, counseling credentials and, and um, administrative credentials uh, and um, a couple of, couple of master's degrees in the process. So, yes. I did go. I did go to college here. <laughs> so a true Northern California a local boy. <laughs> yes, yes, and and uh, but uh, as a as a young person, I moved around a lot um, because uh, I was uh, I was a product of the um, foster care uh, system and uh, and and out of San Mateo County uh, because that's where East Palo Alto is within the jurisdiction of, of, of San Mateo County and uh, the the, uh, the circumstances uh, were, were such where my father had had his parental rights taken away and uh, when I was 10 years old my mother surrendered her parental rights and so I had a um, my I had a, a, a younger brother went to go live with, uh, with a tia, with an aunt. And I had a baby sister that went to go live with another aunt. And, uh, and unfortunately for me, I ran out of aunts. And so I became a ward of the state. And um, so in San Mateo County, unlike Santa Clara County, they don't have a specific place for kids in the interim stages of foster care placement, you either you either go right to a foster placement if some if if there's one readily available, or in San Mateo County you go right to the juvenile hall, and uh, and so that's where that's where I was taken uh, when I was ten years old until my placement came up, and um, and that's what my experience was uh, for pretty much the next five years, going in and out of placements and. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, sometimes people think that when you go into foster care, there's a good possibility that you might be adopted by the foster parents. And, and that, that seldom ever happens. However, it does happen primarily with infants and toddlers. But when you're 10 years old, you're, you're kind of considered too old to, 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 to be extended uh, an opportunity to like that. Um, so you'll you'll go throughout the system until you age out. At uh, at that time, uh, aging out was at eighteen. Now aging out is twenty three. Why do they change the kids that much? Why don't they just leave them with one foster family until they age out, or I don't know half of that term? Why do they keep changing them from one place to another? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that people who do provide support. For foster children, they uh, they they do it because of a number of reasons. It might be some maybe some personal experiences where you know maybe one of the one of the one of the parents uh, was actually a foster child and maybe wanted to kind of give back. In, in essence, uh, there's a number of reasons why people you know want to take kids in, um, but uh, but it, it isn't with a sense of permanency. It's it's with trying to help out. Uh, a, a difficult situation during a difficult time for, for this child. So those foster placements can, at, at least from my age on, they generally last uh, a few months and rarely do they last a few years. Um, so in the interim, between placements, again, back to San Mateo County, 
you'll go back to Jamal Hall. And uh, uh, which for me, ironically, was not a bad thing. I mean, I, I, people, when I, tell, when, I, when I tell people this story, when I went to Juvenile Hall as a result of being taken out of my home and, and taken to Juvenile Hall, and the Juvenile Hall, by the way, it's, it's called Hillcrest. It's right off of Highway 280, kind of, you know, where, right by that road where you would take to go to Half Moon Bay. Um, 82, I think. Yeah, and then the other road, if you were going to go to San Mateo. Well, right there on the, on, on the side of the hill is a cluster of buildings. And, and that's where the Juvenile Hall was and still is. Back to your question, you know, in terms of the uh, frequency or placements, the other, the other contributing factor is the behavior of the child. And my behavior certainly contributed to going in and out of, uh, of a number of uh, uh, foster care placements. You know, I did not make it easy uh, by any means. Uh, and uh, I, was, I was angry. Um, uh, I was incorrigible. Uh, you know, I, I was a hand- traumatized. I was a, yeah. Well, you know, and that's what we know now, right? You know, what we used to think, uh, we used to view these kinds of behaviors as uh, character, character issues. And now we know it's, it's, it's and, and you said it correctly, it's, it's about trauma. And it's about mm-hmm. tra- how trauma manifests itself uh, in behaviors uh, where a child uh, is feeling overwhelmed with circumstances that often would also overwhelm a healthy adult, let alone a child. So the sense of abandonment, the sense of loss, the sense of separation. And uh, although I didn't feel that with my parents, I felt that with my siblings, uh, my brother and my sister that I had uh, no contact at all with for years. Have you contacted them as an adult? Have you been able to get a relationship? Were you able no, to... no, we still, it, it's really interesting because I think that, that as a family, we still have experienced that trauma. And, um, and so, you know, they, uh, they have, they, they have, they have their own lives, they have their families, we don't have as much contact as a, as maybe a healthy, uh, a healthy family uh, would normally have. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but uh, it's not uncommon either, not uncommon at all. And then you grew up to be part of the public education system, you went to have your counseling credentials, you work with children all around the Bay Area, and uh, you went to be a principal. You want to tell us more about it? My, uh, my, my, my first uh, uh, position was that of a high school counselor uh, in Mountain View, oh, the, old Mountain View the old Mountain View High School. And, uh, uh, and I was there uh, not, not much older than the high school students uh, that I was counseling. And uh, Uh, I worked there for a number of years and then went off to another school district. Uh, I worked at the district office developing uh, safety nets for kids and families at that particular school district. Uh, and then I, I took a break uh, from, uh, from public education and I went to work for a nonprofit. It was one of the oldest uh, and largest Latino uh, advocacy organizations. And I was the assistant director there I was in charge of uh, the day-to-day operations, which uh, also entailed a number of um, educational advocacy uh, initiatives that we had. Um, there were a number of programs. There were a number of technical assistance 
that we were providing uh, various providers that worked with kids in general, Latino kids in particular. Uh, and then we also participated in a number of both state and national legislation being part of a uh, coalition of folks that would contribute to ideas and, and articulating those ideas that ultimately would become uh, legislation if we were able to get somebody to sponsor those particular bills. So, um, so I had that background. And then uh, about uh, five years later, I was tapped by former superintendent of San Jose, a school superintendent by the name of Ramon Cortines, who is legendary in, in public education. Uh, after he was in San Jose, he ran the San Francisco school system. And then after that, he ran the New York system under Giuliani. And then after that, he ran the LA system. And uh, Ramon is still around working and consulting uh, uh, superintendents all around the country. And, and uh, I still consider him a mentor. But I was tapped by him to be part of a five-member, uh, what we call a desegregation team. In the early 80s, uh, San Jose Unified was found guilty of, of segregating uh, students in, in the school district. And so it was ordered uh, to desegregate the system within about five years. So uh, Superintendent Cortinas organized a team of five individuals uh, and, uh, and called us the desegregation team. He sent us all around the country for about a year, uh, visiting school districts, looking at what they were doing to uh, address uh, uh, segregation issues and looking at their desegregation models. Uh, and honestly, you know, we came back feeling very discouraged because a lot of school districts were just simply not um, uh, maintaining the integrity of their specific programs. Uh, some school districts were using Latino kids to desegregate black schools. Um, some schools were using Asians to desegregate, uh, you know, white schools. So, so it was, it was, it was a bit frustrating, uh, but there was a school district that um, um, was doing, uh, we thought some really, really uh, interesting things. Uh, and that was in Milwaukee. And Milwaukee had a program uh, that focused on creating theme-based programs at various schools, uh, and they were called magnet schools. And these, and they were called magnet schools because these these themes were areas that uh, may attract families to leave their neighborhood and go into another neighborhood that they normally wouldn't choose, but they were, they were very interested and very committed to a particular program. So, you know, some were language programs, uh, some were art programs, uh, some were um, uh, STEM uh, programs. And so that's, that's the concept that we brought back to San Jose Unified. And uh, back in the eighties, we created, I think it was something like about 27 magnet schools in a school system that had about 40 schools. Well, it is a little bit shocking to hear that by the 80s, there were so many segregated school or openly segregated school when the civil rights movements was in the 60s. And uh, we will think that there were so many changes that were positive over the years, but you say that it was very, very strongly segregated, so we can understand. Well, you know, uh, ironically, they still are. They're, they're still segregated. 
if if you uh, if you look at uh, schools throughout the Calif- throughout California, including the Bay Area, you know, if you have um, you know, and you don't have to look far, you might you might look even in Palo Alto uh, or you know other schools in the county. There's a number of schools where if you look at the uh, ethnicity uh, composition of the student body, you will be you'll be surprised. Uh, we don't we don't particularly use those terms anymore. Now we're using more terms that speak to how we address the needs of students uh, by uh, referencing terms like equity. But is that more for how the neighborhoods are built, how they are made of? Well, yeah, and, and I think that uh, certainly, yeah, it, you're certainly correct. Um, it, it's all, for the most part, driven by socioeconomic status, right? And, uh, but, uh, I mean, you could, you could have a school district that have a number of people of color. But those individuals of color might be folks that have a high level of education. They have um, uh, a lot of financial resources, a lot of discretionary income to use uh, to provide and expand uh, opportunities for their children, whether it be athletic coaching or or uh, enrichment programs, whatever that might be. And so you can see, you can see there's a number of examples of that as well. Cupertino is one of those areas. Uh, Mountain View is one of those areas as well, uh, where you have people of color. They're not necessarily the traditional folks that we normally think about in terms of, you know, Latino, Asian, or they're East Indian. They're people of color, but they have, because of their socioeconomic status, within the community, again, they're able to broker a number of things on behalf of their family and an extended family as well. And how was the move to be a principal? How did you change from one job to the other and decided to go on be a principal? How did I get to be a principal? Uh, that's, that's really interesting because uh, as I was working at the district office, um, clearly I saw where the action was, was at the school site. And I wanted to be part of that. And so I asked for uh, an opportunity uh, to be an assistant principal because that's essentially what the track is. You know, you go from working at a site either as a teacher or, or as a counselor and you move into assistant principalship. And, um, and then just kind of following that track, there's opportunities to focus on discipline, on curriculum, on uh, social emotional programs that service kids. There's a number of things that you can do to gain some, some rich experiences that ultimately uh, combine uh, will, will help you develop um, the kind of leadership that, that I think district office leadership is looking for. Uh, somebody at the site that has a well-rounded background in all of the different elements and components of running a school. And uh, so I had an opportunity to do that. And and I'm really thankful for that because I, I was able to join a middle school. Um, and, and, and people will tell you, people in education uh, will tell you that regarding middle schools, if you work there, you either hate it or you love it. There's very little in between. That can be a really tough population to work with. I was extremely fortunate 
Isabel to work with a group of people who love that age group and that age group loved them um, because they they consistently were doing uh, in retrospect three things they were communicating respect and empathy and sincerity to those kids and as a result uh, you know those those kids were just fabulous um, you know did did they have issues absolutely considering the age and you know what's happening to them emotionally and physically, but there, there's but part of that emergence of that individual is that is is the the sense of um, sense of fairness, right? That, that feeling of of wanting to exercise some independent thinking. There's also humor as well. I particularly love the bantering. I love going back and forth with the kids. Uh, and, you know, they were never disrespectful to me. They were just very, very quick and very sharp. And I would give them opportunities to feel that, you know, Mr. Scotto was right there with them and, and really appreciating what they had to say. From my perspective, it was a wonderful intellectual exercise. I think kids that are quick and funny, that's a, that's a good sign. That's a, that's, that's a sign of, of high intelligence. And so I was there for two years. Normally, uh, you're an assistant principal for three to maybe five years. Some of it depends on who your principal is and what they're able to offer in terms of some mentorship some coaching, some mentorship. I was fortunate that I had a very strong principal. You know, quite frankly, even after two years, I, I thought I was ready. So I started looking for opportunities at another school district. And someone had mentioned that to our superintendent. Our superintendent reached out to me and said, I understand you're, you're looking for a principalship. Just want to let you know that we have four brand new openings next year, and I would encourage you to apply. So that's what I did. It was really interesting because they recommended me for three of the four schools and the four schools that I wasn't recommended for. <laughs> well, that was the one that you really wanted? That's the school I got sent to. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> But this particular school was going through principals every two years. Oh, uh, it, it, the, the situation was uh, chaotic, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> and uh, when my superintendent told me uh, that I was going to be a principal, she said, congratulations, you're going to be a principal. Where would you like to go? And one of the openings was uh, was an elementary school that I had attended for a short while. And I and I, I was really looking forward to possibly being assigned there. And and I, I gave her the name of the school and I saw her expression change. And I said, oh, oh I think she's going to send me to that school that nobody wants to go to. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was aware of and and so my superintendent said, um, I need you to go to there for you to work with that community. But then she said something that really concerned me. She says, however, after after three or four months, if you need to get if you need to get out of there, I'll, I will I will reassign you. And I thought wow. this is going to be even worse than I thought. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I went there and I was I, I spent 11 years there. Good. So you were able to help and make it better was very fortunate to build a really strong team. Um, and in fact, uh, 13 of my staff members, 13 of my teachers became principals. Uh, and one is currently uh, the superintendent at San Jose Municipal. Thank you for listening to Atenea Americana, your house of culture in the radio and online. In this bilingual show, I bring you every week one hour in English and one hour in Spanish, opening a window to the cultural Hispanic world. 
you can hear in the intro and at the final of the show, as well as right now, music from the legend of Latin jazz, Oscar Hernandez. This and all my shows are in stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org, where I wait for your comments. I invite you to be part of this. So tell me a little bit more about the Advocate for Foster Children program that you are part of. It is great that you have come the whole circle. You were in this program as a kid, and now you are as a grown-up being actually a helper and advocate for children in foster care in the same county, in the same system that you were before. How uh, does it work? And if anyone is interested, what should they do? And well, what is it exactly? Children in California that are in foster care have, uh, every, every child has a social worker and they also have an attorney assigned to them. What, what is also encouraged, but unfortunately it's not always the case, is that the child would have a court-appointed special advocate. This is, this is actually uh, something that exists nationally, and there's a number of organizations throughout the country who recruit and train volunteers to become court-appointed special advocates. These advocates, by the way, are uh, officers of the court. They're sworn in by a judge, um, and um, you are responsible for advocating for this child's education, health, and mental health needs, and pretty much uh, involves 30 hours of, uh, of training on a number of subjects. The expectation is that at the very least you have uh, one contact a week. It could be as little as one hour or several hours. But depending on the child's needs, and the volunteers' availability. Uh, we have volunteers that you know see see their children almost every day. Uh, that's not necessary, but again, it all depends on the circumstance. There may be periods of time where you need to see a child more frequently during the month, for instance, as opposed to other times. And um, the organization in Santa Clara County that um, recruits and, and trains these volunteers uh, is called Child Advocates of Silicon Valley. Just about every county, I believe, uh, has a similar type of organization. I'm not aware that they would be uh, have the same name. I do believe, I, I understand, I think it's Monterey County or Santa Cruz County that uh, has a child advocates of that particular county. So, but I'm not sure what San Mateo County would be, or, but there is, There's, there, there is an organization that does that. There's an organization that constantly is in need of, of adult volunteers. You know, um, there is a, there's a fellow who studies the phenomena of resiliency the social emotional needs and strength of children in particular. And, you know, he, he asked the question, how is it that you can have two kids in the same community and one is resilient, meaning they can handle a number of factors that the other child struggles with? What's the difference? His uh, last name is uh, Burns, and Tim Burns. Tim Burns is, is, is a researcher. So what he found out is that there's a number of factors that contribute to a child being resilient. Three most constant that he found is that, number one, 
the child has a friend or friends. It doesn't matter how many, even if it's just one, as long as there is a friend who cares about them and there's some mutual respect and support for one another. That's a, that's a major factor. Wow. Well, that makes sense. The second factor is that the child has uh, what Tim Burns refers to as an anchor. Hmm. And anchors are not people. Hmm. Anchors are the things that a child can do and does well. And as a result of having a sense of confidence in doing that thing well, they gain a sense of confidence. It could be reading. It could be gardening. It could be sports. It could be a number of things, as long as it's one thing that they feel good at. Good. And then the third, and in my opinion, the most important of the three, is that there's at least one healthy adult in this child's life. We used to think that that healthy adult would come from the family. Not anymore. Now, what we're seeing is that those healthy adults are somewhere in the community. They could be a coach. It could be a music teacher. It could be somebody at the community center. It could be a neighbor. But more often than not, it's someone in a school setting, a teacher, a principal, a cafeteria worker, a custodian. I mean, I used to have a custodian who was just, he was phenomenal. And he, he just had this gift of connecting with kids. And the kids just loved him. And it was just important for them to know that this really special person who happened to be our custodian, that he really thought they were special. And so that's, that's what Tim Burns says. That's the difference, is to have those three factors uh, consistently in your life. To have resilient kids that can thrive in any circumstance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen that in our district when a lot of kids connect with the lunch lady or with the custodian or the coach or any person that is inside the school environment. But other thing, uh, when you were talking a little bit about the stages in, in children and how different they are, it is amazing. I've seen the kids graduating, well, you know, not really graduating, but passing from elementary to middle school. And, uh, you know, you see them being funny or silly during that moment when they get that paper. And then the difference when they get from middle school to high school and, you know, they are they like confidence or they can be shy. And then they're completely different character by the moment they get the graduation from high school. And, you know, you can compare the attitudes and, and the personalities, how it has been changing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's yeah. adorable, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's really interesting because uh, the same, you can say the same thing about parents and the stages and phases that they go through, um, you know, uh, how they're readying themselves for the new baby uh, and all the things that they're thinking about and considering that they never had before, right? Uh, and just the anticipation of the excitement. And then, and then the baby arrives and it's a celebration and it's not only a parent's baby, but it's the baby of the whole family, right? <laughs> Particularly amongst our, uh, us. I, and, I, and I'm speaking that not only as a grandfather, uh, but I also have three great grandchildren. And so, but I can see how we as adults, whether we're parents or grandparents or now great grandparents, we're constantly evolving as well. So, so yeah, what you're what you're saying about the children in terms of the stages and phases that they go through, uh, that's that's certainly very real. Uh, but I think it's also important as educators. 
educators, that we understand uh, the stages and phases of development uh, that we as parents go through. I remember is about a conversation that I had with, with some of my teachers one time. It was during a staff meeting. And one of the teachers asked, uh, why, why do parents overreact? to something that, you know, just doesn't seem like a big deal and blah, blah, blah. And, and, um, and, and what a wonderful question, because from my perspective, it was an opportunity to talk about uh, a stage and phase that this particular teacher, and in fact, many of my teachers had not experienced yet. They weren't parents, you know? Uh, and, I, I, and, and so I began to explain, and those teachers that were on my staff who were parents also contributed to that perspective that it doesn't matter uh, how resilient you think you may be uh, as an adult. When you become a parent, all of that goes out the window, right? <laughs> Completely. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I gave the example of how I thought, you know, growing up, you know, being uh, a little thug and, uh, you know, a little, little gangbanger and, and all of that. I thought I was just a really tough character. And there's still some of that in me where I'm feeling like, you know, what do you mean I can't do it? I'm going to do it because I think I can do it and I think I can do it well. And, you know, there's just that, that's, that thing in me that, that, uh, that I feel I can overcome and withstand anything. However, when I became a parent, I realized that's, that's, my, that's my vulnerable spot. Everyone's. If anything happens to my child, anything happens to my grandkids or my great-grandkids, boy, I, I'm like a big bowl of jelly. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there, there's, this, um, there's this term uh, that I'm sure you're familiar with and many of your, many of your audience, uh, Spanish-speaking audience, is familiar with, and that's uh, being a chion. And I am a chion. You know, uh, I can be stubborn. I can get an attitude. I can get up. I can get frustrated. I can get angry. But you know, there's there's that vulnerability with children, uh, whether it's my own or children in general. That oh my god, the tears just come down. When you have one child, it's like you have all children in the world. So back to that teacher's question: Why is it the parents, you know, seem to overreact? Well. <laughs> Because they're, depending on the circumstances, they're confronted with a situation which they feel they don't have any control over, you know, and, uh, and it over, it's overwhelming, you know, how could this happen? You know? <laughs> so, I know. So, uh, that, that, and it hurts three times more than if it happens to oh yourself because it's your, it's your kid or your grandkid or... remember that this is Atenea Americana and that today we're talking with Adam Scotto, educator and children advocate. You know, there is this great experience that you had while being a foster kid advocate that you had the opportunity to go back to a very special place when you were a foster kid, but this time you were in a different capacity and uh, how that made you feel and how rewarding that was for the people in uh, that place that they they saw you as, as an adult and a successful a stable person that went through the same experience that the kids are going at that moment yeah 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 thanks for thanks for asking about that um Just before I retired, I was the uh, assistant superintendent for curriculum instruction in the same school district that I was a kid in, and that was in Ravenswood, Ravenswood City 
City Elementary School District. And um, one, one day, late in the day, I got a phone call. And the phone call was from a, a very frustrated educational director from Hillcrest Juvenile Hall. And they said, my God, we have been calling for days trying to get the records of one of your students that we that we have up here. And we just can't get anybody to respond to the calls. Well, I apologized profusely and said, you know, please give me the name and I'll, I'll, I'll pull the file and I'll, I'll, I'll hand deliver it to you. And the director said, oh, no, Mr. Scotto, that's not necessary. Just, you know, I'm, I'm just grateful that I was able to con- contact somebody. And, and it's, it sounds now we're finally going to get this file. And I said, no worries. Let me know uh, what time I can meet you. And they said, again, that's just not necessary. You can put the file in, in, uh, in the mail. And I said, well, let me tell you a story. And so I told her about my experience in, in, in Hillcrest. And she said, come on over. So I took the file, got it in my car, and, and I went to Hillcrest. And I met her there. And I was being uh, given a tour. And, uh, you know, naturally, the facilities did not look the same. Uh, they were brand new facilities. You know, the, the, the colors were bright and the furnishings were, were new and looked comfortable. And it, it just, it was very different than what I read Hillcrest to be. And, um, and as we were walking, we walked by a uh, conference room. In this conference room was a group session with two counselors that were having a conversation with, with some students. And uh, the education director um, asked if, if we could interrupt and, and uh, she wanted to introduce me to them. And she introduced me as this is Mr. Escoto. He's the uh, assistant superintendent uh, at a local school district. And, uh, you know, and you can see the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, go ahead. Let's, let's get back to this discussion. And then she said, and Mr. Escoto used to be a resident here. Well, all of a sudden, those children looked at me very, very differently. And, and uh, obviously, I, you know, I now had their attention. And one brave little kid said, well, what was it like when you were here? And I said, I loved it. I loved it. It was the, it was the first place I felt cared for. It was, uh, it was the first place that I had more than one person who showed me that they cared, uh, that I was safe, that I was fed, uh, and that I was taken care of. I have very, very special memories of this place. And like you, I had uh, people who were always expressing that they cared about me, like these two people that are here. And those boys turned around and looked at their counselors, and you could see their expressions had changed. They were looking at their counselors as um, people who were uh, not just staff members, but these were individuals that were there because they cared about them. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an old saying, how do you get rid of a pattern or a cycle? And the answer is you bring in new information. And for these boys, for that moment, that pattern, that cycle is, you know, yeah, I'm here. I'm stuck in juvenile hall and I got to go through this. You know, I got I to gotta listen to these guys and they're going to ask me questions. But the new information that they got that changed that pattern and that cycle of perspective that they had was that these people were there because they cared about them. And I was fortunate enough to see that at that moment that it happened. Now, did it last? I don't know. But certainly, <laughs> it was, for me, it was very profound. So we continued on. Uh, and, and in fact, I thanked them and, and we were going to go on to the tour. And, you know, one of the kids said, uh, are you coming back? 
and uh, <laughs> which was great because you know translation is a hey we like you we like you and I said you know if that's if that's possible I would love to come back and I was teasing them and I said and hopefully you're not here <laughs> still not here but uh, so anyway we continued with the tour and we went outside and when we went outside to my surprise the old boys unit was still standing they they were going to they were going to knock it down and build a park but the county ran out of money because they they built all these other buildings and they did all these other things and they ran out of money so they had a new boys center they had a new girls center but they didn't have a park and so what they did is that they surrounded the old boys unit with uh, a cyclone fence. So where we were standing, Isabel, I could see my old room, my room that looked over onto Crystal Springs in the direction of Highway 280. Because when I was there, you know, I was there some, uh, 60 years ago. I was there 60 years ago. That was in the direction of where Highway 280, it hadn't even built, been built yet. It was just a one two-lane road. And, uh, but I remember at night, you know, looking out into Crystal Springs and the moonbeams were coming off of the, the reservoir. It was just beautiful. When I first went there, I, I thought, Isabel, I died and went to heaven. And, and that, that really kind of confuses people because, I, again, I had my own room. I had clean clothes. I had three hot meals. Again, I was 10 years old and I had my first ever toothbrush. Oh, that's how my circumstances or that's what my circumstances were before I got there. So so every time I saw a social worker meeting with my foster parents, I knew I was going to be going back to Hillcrest. And deep down inside, I thought, yes, because <laughs> not only my attachment to Hillcrest was because of the relationships that I had there. The supervisor was a name was a name of a, of a gentleman who I met. I, I actually met him after all these years. Uh, I met him about five years ago. His name is Dean Lockrin. He was the supervisor. And I love that. I just love that man. I didn't know his first name until about 10 years ago, because when I went on that tour, I was introduced to the person that was in charge of the girls unit. And she said, do you remember any of the people who used to work here? And I said, you know, the only one I remember his name is Mr. Lockrin. And she looked at me stunned. And she says, you know, there is nobody here in this whole facility that knows that name, with the exception of myself. He is a colleague of mine. He worked here for a lot of years. He's now retired. He lives up in Santa Rosa. And I said, can you get us together? And so I gave her my telephone number. She got a hold of him and I got a phone call. And I said, and he said, you know, hello, Adam, this is Dean Lochran. I understand we knew each other a long time ago. It was a very, very emotional conversation. Uh, since then, he's, he's, he's passed away. But, um, but I, I just wanted to share that, that piece. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I think it's a beautiful story and it really gives closure to that part of your life and it's so powerful so I can just imagine the emotion you guys share together did he remember you no <laughs> yeah, so many kids I bet that he it, he got the idea but but it didn't matter because I remembered him yes yes it's important part and that he knew that he was important to you yeah I, I yeah I you know uh well I was gonna say I think so no I, I made it very clear uh, how important he was uh, in my life at that time. Throughout the years, the 60 plus years, I've often, often have thought about him. You know, every time my wife can tell you when we're 
driving either north or south on the, on 280 and we go by Hillcrest, I will just quietly look up and do, just do a little two-finger salute. <laughs> That's my way of just acknowledging that very special place and acknowledging, you know, my past that that contributed to my future. You know what I like about that particular anecdote is that it really brings the whole circle together. But, you know, also going through the path of you being a counselor, caring about the social-emotional health of every child, looking after kids who might have some trouble in life or some disadvantage, foster kids, you know, all sorts of uh, kids from every path that can uh, be part of the public education system. And, you know, coming back as as an advocate, as a, a assistant superintendent or a principal or in any other of your roles to be able to be a helper? Yeah. Oh, you know, you had asked a question that I didn't, I didn't answer about, you know, how did I become a... A, a, a court-appointed advocate. An advocate. Um, so I had gotten an email from, from child, child advocates of Silicon Valley. And the email was that there were a number of children that were going into the foster care system in South County. That would be Gilroy, San Martin, Morgan Hill. And the overwhelming majority of children were, were, were Latino, Spanish speaking. And um, they, they were invited me to be part of a strategy group to see how we could recruit more volunteers in general and Latinos in particular. Uh, and especially men. Um, I was invited to a meeting. And I went to the meeting. And at the meeting, they gave us an overview of what the program was uh, and all the different elements, components, the training and, and the responsibilities and that sort of thing. And they were giving us all of this so we would have a, a, a solid foundation from which to reflect on how can we best create some strategies to get people really interested and I would even say excited about making themselves available, being being that healthy adult in a child's life. And as we were going, as as I was sitting there and listening and just kind of processing all this information, I was thinking to myself that for years, Isabel, I have told my wife, I wish we could take in foster kids. And my wife looked at me like most wives look at their husbands when they say something kind of crazy. And she says, my goodness, Adam. You know, you're a school principal. You have 850 kids. You know, you're you're already their their foster grandfather, <laughs> and so so that was the consolation, right? But now I was retired, and so now I'm thinking, this is it. This is this is where I can fulfill that need, and, I, and I'm describing it, I think, correctly. That need to give back. And I can imagine to keep making a difference in the life of children, even after you're retired. So I signed up that night and uh, subsequently went through the 30 hours of training and, and um, along with, with my particular cohort. And then we were interviewed by a judge and we were given an oath. We took the oath and that's when we became uh, officers of the court. And then the next step, and this is an important step for anybody in your audience that might be considering or would hopefully consider becoming an advocate is that you review with a social worker a number of files 
representing children in their circumstances. And you're given some background about it. And that conversation is to help determine or, or have you determine whether or not your, your, your skills, talents, and interests would be a good fit for this particular child. They're all in need of that healthy adult. But there might be a child that, you know, that's a, a, a first grader, a second grader, a middle schooler, a high school. And um, that's when you make a decision as to which would be a good fit. Ideally, you, you, you will only have one child to work with. However, there is such a need for Latinos in general and men in particular that uh, I took on three, three kids. And um, I just completed six years that's amazing. I still have the three kids during these six years. Well, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, I lost contact with one of them. Uh, but one of them is uh, is a is a young father, very very hard worker. He's still working, and is a uh, he and his girlfriend are doing the best they can to raise that baby. And and so we're still in contact, even though he's not, you know, he's not uh, on my caseload anymore. I still have contact with him. And I, and I plan to have contact with him for as long as I live. You know, I, I feel that. That you still have that connection. Yeah. And, and so I still feel like I can um, maybe, you know, he doesn't need me as much as an advocate, but I think he's appreciative of the fact that, you know, he can still consult with me. And, and equally important, I can still broker some resources for him and his family. Now, the other, the other one is just finishing up his junior year at the University of California at Davis. And he's going to be a, he's going to be a teacher. Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> what an inspiration. And I also want to thank you. Thank you very much for coming and for sharing all those stories and that remarkable life and uh, all those very interesting anecdotes about your life, about your profession, your experiences from both sides of the foster system and on the education system. And I'm really looking forward to have you back one day. Well, thank you so much. And thank you again, Isabel, for inviting me. Thank you. And this was Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Americana. Stanford 90.1 FM. Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. This is Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para la radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Juves. Isabel Juves. Vuelve pronto. Atenea Americana. From Stanford to the world. Remember to come back soon. Ciao. See you later.